Hello and welcome to Zero Net 50. I'm Jennifer Deloney and with me is Joel Stronberg. Hi, Joel. Hi, Jennifer. Hello. So we haven't posted in uh, a few weeks now, so um, I think it's a good time for us to just jump in and chat a little bit about what's what's going on in Washington for the end of the year and what people can expect before the holidays hit. Um, I suppose in a word, chaos is what we can expect. I mean, it's, uh-huh. it's kind of the continuation, but I think that um, the two things that are going to uh, consume uh, Congress and, and the White House basically between now and the end of the year um, are the impeachment issues um, mm-hmm. and trying to keep the government uh, in business past the December 20 deadline, uh, which was established by a continuing resolution of a continuing resolution that ended um, just prior to Thanksgiving. Uh, this week, the two things that the uh, uh, House Intelligence Committee is going to be coming out with its report or, or its draft report. Judiciary Committee begins uh, its hearings this week, and I think people are looking for these hearings actually to continue um, if not the hearings themselves, at least the reports into the beginning of the new year, um, where when a, a vote of impeachment will be either taking place um, and then moving on to the Senate. As far as the appropriation stuff is concerned, I mean, there are basically 10 days at the most um, of, of leg- legislative days left in, in, in the year here in Washington. Um, I can't see any appropriations bills uh, being enacted. I think most of the uh, activity there is going to be focused on what kind of a continuing resolution can they put forward um, that gets the, the government at least open past the end of the year into the new year. The issue that's going to take uh, center stage on that, which um, is the wall. Um, mm-hmm. And although the wall has been kind of secondary to the these previous discussions on continuing resolutions, I think that this is going to come, it's going to loom large here uh, in December, and there's also the question always of what Trump is going to do, and I think that nobody can predict that. Um, clearly, he feels himself um, surrounded by a, a government uh, of traitors, if, if, if you will, mm-hmm. um, and I think that he would he would be willing, I believe, to actually uh, go into a government shutdown because he doesn't feel any warm and fuzzies towards the uh, Uh, towards the bureaucracy. Um, Mm -hmm. I hope that doesn't happen. And I know that actually Republican um, members of Congress probably hope that won't happen more than I don't hope that Mm -hmm. it won't happen. But we'll see what happens. It's it's a lot of happening, isn't there? Um, Yeah. (laughs) uh, But basically that's, I mean, any any other activity that's going to be happening in Congress as far as committee meetings and stuff are concerned um, will be mostly on messaging bills. Um, and things that they, that members can take back to their uh, constituencies when they go home for the holidays. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that the real I mean, the real action um, is going to be happening uh, across the Atlantic uh, in Europe. I mean, the the yeah. NATO meeting is coming up, and the UN meeting is coming up, and I think that that'll be the third kind of leg of the uh, the news stories. Yeah. So so you're talking about the. 25th conference of parties right the, for the exactly UN, right. yes right in madrid and 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 just let's pause for a second here and think about what that means so it's been four years since the paris agreement was signed at the 21st conference of parties in 2015 so um 
those with a pulse on the climate change movement, I think can feel like sometimes we're making progress and, and also we're also behind our goals all at the same time specific to the Paris Agreement. And you know, for years, it feels like we should have come much farther, but you know, we're seeing just in advance of the uh, 25th conference that the European Parliament just issued its uh, declaration or its resolution declaring a climate emergency. But you know, in that, they're specifically stating that the European countries are not anywhere close to meeting their, you know, their declarations in terms of where they need to be under the Paris Agreement. And so four years seems like we should have gotten it together. And, and it almost seems frightening because we're talking also about um, a point where, I don't know if you saw that journal article in, uh, in Nature Journal about, oh, yes. you know, our tipping points. Um, I mean, we're talking about tipping points that are significant, ice loss, acceleration, unstoppable boreal forest fires, slowing of ocean circulation, you know, these really big ones. And it's like we're in this teeny, teeny tiny window of time where we can have any effect on these, these massive issues. So it all seems a little alarming. But on the other hand, you know, I try and draw myself back in and say, okay, but European Parliament did issue this declaration uh, of a climate emergency. It's, I think they called it a climate and environmental em emergency. And, you know, in there, they're making specific calls for, you know, anything that is a, a relevant legislative or budgetary action has to be considered in terms of, a, you know, the Paris Agreement goals. So, you know, that seems like a a great place for them to you know, put their foot down. And then they also want to make sure that EU countries um, are at least double their contributions to the Green Climate Fund. So, um, you know, they, they think that more money is going to help. And, you know, that ultimately is where people start to fight the hardest is not only where is this funding going to go? What's it going to do? Um, but who is going to benefit from it? Um, so, you know, we're, we're seeing these climate emergencies being declared across the board all over the world, many countries, many jurisdictions, and you, know, you and I see differently on, you know, whether there's benefit to it. How, you know, are, are we going to have a positive result from all of these effort, efforts and and I think your perspective is really valuable because it represents you know exactly what people are thinking out there when someone says let's declare a climate emergency. Thanks for that although I do admit that my position on this is somewhat curmudgeonly um, <laughs> taken if, if, if you will okay. and, and so yep. I mean I mean, if you combine my curmudgeonness with your hope, um, we we probably have a more accurate <laughs> picture. But um, right, yes. And, and as you do, as as you said, I do have mixed emotions about the climate emergency. Um, I think part of it is a function of where it's where where it could be, it could best serve um, the needs of communities and and ultimately the the world. I mean, we're we're seeing a couple of things happen here. I mean, first of all. 
when when the Paris Agreement was signed, even then everybody knew that the the pledges were were going to fall short. I mean, they, mm -hmm. they were they were framed and said the, the the agreement was framed in such a way that um, it was politically palatable to um, a large number of countries, and um, but it was not it was not what the science actually suggests that we we need. Um, now what's happening? What's happening? Uh, there have been political changes. Um, certainly, uh, uh, the election of Trump and um, populist regimes uh, in the cold countries of, of Europe, um, and even in in Germany, I mean, which has been a leader for years, uh, is now turning to the right. Um, and and on those those topics, uh, climate comes into their into their platform in a negative way. Uh, the same thing happens in France. The progressives or the populists in France. Um, not only have an anti-environmental um, mentality, but they're they're actually using it to to as a as a claim to to defeat uh, immigration from uh, African nations into the country, saying that nomads uh, have no have no commitment to to a clean environment in France. I mean, it it gets twisted in a number of ways. Yeah. Um, while that's happening, and so in, in a certain sense, the Trump kind of uh, the Trump train, if you will, um, yeah. is putting pressure to not increase pledges. At the mm -hmm. same time, a lot of nations, I mean, not just the, the small island nations uh, of the Pacific, but I mean, nations across the globe are actually feeling the impacts um, of what a two degree change in average temperatures means. And so mm -hmm. that um, the, there's a, there's a, uh, the threat is becoming much more real. And now, as you suggested, the monies are trying to be divided between um, implementing and, uh, new policies, uh, creating new technologies, both in research and in demonstration, and in just remediation and adaptation and defense against what's going on now. And I think that, that mm -hmm. you get these kind of multiple pockets um, of pressures. By the same token, I'm, an emergency reg resolution at the local level um, probably has a lot more uh, opportunity to change the dynamic than it does at the federal level. In the federal level, declaring an emergency at the federal level in the absence of clauses in actual legislation that can be that would trigger, for example, um, uh, expedited actions by the federal government rings fairly hollow. I mean, it, it's a strong message, but it doesn't really accomplish anything. At the local level, it can accomplish a lot in the changing of how governments operate um, mm -hmm. uh, and in r raising awareness and preparing populations, I think, for um, a different set of, of, of regulations and, and uh, expenditure targets than they're experiencing now. And I, I think you you had spoken with me earlier about uh, what was going on in Vermont in, at the state mm -hmm. level, and I think mm -hmm. that that's mm -hmm. I think that's a good example of how a climate emergency declaration can help um, energize the kind of activities needed at the local level that uh, that will actually change the the face ultimately of global efforts uh, to combat climate change. Yeah. Well, I had the opportunity. Oh, about a week ago to sit on a sit in on a very local level public meeting that was held by um, members of the Vermont Climate Solutions Caucus. Um, and that's all 
members it's like 80 plus members of the senate and the house um and the the caucuses uh they they their goal is working together to move climate policy through the legislature. Um, and so for this meeting, and they've been having them throughout the state to get input from the public, they gave a presentation on the group's legislative priorities for the next session, which was you know, very important and fascinating, I think. Among those priorities is the Global Warming Solutions Act that we recently talked about. Um, it's essentially an accountability bill the foundation of the act is to turn state environmental goals into requirements. Um, the ultimate target for Vermont under the bill, you know, as it stands, would be uh, zero net climate pollution by 2050. So it's a pretty standard um, view on, you know, what those goals should be. Um, the bill was introduced in the 2019 session and didn't make it out of committee. So after the presentation, I asked the two people who were presenting whether there was room in the next session for the declaration of a state-level climate emergency, and the short answer was no. And I was a little bit surprised by that. They did backpedal a little bit, and they suggested that it would work as a finding to the Global Warming Solutions Act. So you know, I, I asked them if the act was actually written yet, because the session starts in January, and they said no, and there was no, no clear vision as to, you know, when the people of the of Vermont would be able to see, you know, what they actually write for that act. But um, <clears throat> we'll see how that goes. And as an aside, the act didn't make it out of committee. I don't know if I said that. Um, for the 2019. So it's like, okay, they've made this a priority, even though they know they've already failed once at doing it. And something that they haven't tried to do, they think is not worth fighting for. But they also suggested that I and other members of the uh, audience could write to our representatives to say that we support the declaration of a climate emergency, which I did, by the way, and not that I got any sort of glowing response saying, yeah, that's a great idea. But at least I did what they suggested. Um, well, uh, what I was saying, I think too that I mean it's important when advocates you know uh, write and contact um, the lawmakers that they mm -hmm. they not only talk about the emergency the climate emergency as a declaration, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. what it could lead to and yes. what companion pieces could be um, could be added to that kind of activity. It's, it's one of the reasons, for example, I think that at the local level, more local level, cities, for example, mm -hmm. um, in some ways have a better have a better opportunity to for a couple of reasons. One is I think that um, made, cities, I think, tend to have a less um, divided uh, voter base I mean, the city, urban urban areas and right, and their close right. in suburbs tend to be either Democratic or Republican moderate, um, mm -hmm. both of which um, both constituencies of which understand and want to do something about climate change. I think the other thing that happens is that you could one of the things that I would like uh, that I'd like that I'm going to start looking into in more detail is if a climate emergency is declared at the city level, for example, mm -hmm. could it be partnered with legislation that says, okay, well, now we can have an expedited regulatory scheme that assures that all new buildings are zero, uh, are, are net zero 
um, buildings that are mm -hmm. highly efficient that, um, and in some cases that would outlaw the use of natural gas. Um, some cities are looking at that because the worry is, of course, that, that we're trading coal for natural gas, but it's still a fossil fuel. Um, mm -hmm. It could do other things too, for example. I mean, could it allow um, for funds to what some cities are calling deconstructing themselves? So that what they're doing is they're buying out at, at market rates, not at uh, foreclosure rates, um, properties that are consistently being inundated now by floodwaters, you know, to pay the, you know, to pay the residents to move um, to safer areas and to knock those buildings down um, and create natural water barriers, or land water barriers, or watersheds. That's happening in, in, in Charlotte, North Carolina. For example, and with, with a fair amount of success, in the sense that the populace is in favor of these things, and so I think that that connecting connecting the emergency declaration to something that that it will open the door for, you know, as a matter of regulation, for example, or or shifts in budget priorities, becomes a really powerful combination. That mm -hmm. is not really available at the at the national level. I mean, it, it's just not going to happen at the congressional level. It may not happen at the state level. I mean, your experience in Vermont, I think, is not is not unusual. I mean, some states are more active and better um, better prepared to move than than other states. But um, it does bring it down to the city level, and I mean, this really becomes a matter of grassroots change that is triggered by these kinds of declarations. Yeah. Or could be. Yes. Uh, so in Vermont, Burlington, which we call our Queen City, in September declared an, a climate emergency. And, um, you know, it did include specific direction to city government offices to do whatever they could to meet their overarching goal for the city in terms of emissions. Um, and so... You know, that's a Burlington is the is not our capital, but it's our biggest city, and it has always been a leader in terms of uh, climate and, and green energy and those things. So it's interesting to see their approach. And part of the resolution calls on state leadership to do the same. So you know, it's interesting to me that you know what, there's such pushback from the legislators at the state level when the biggest city in the state is like, we're, we're doing it, we need you to do it, and we need the governor's support, but it's just not there yet. Um, let me see here. So um, the the resolution itself, I, I didn't read it, but um, if, you know those, those two issues, I think, are the biggest and make Burlington a leader in that respect. Well, but, although, oh, yeah. I was just gonna say, that, I mean, what you're describing in Burlington, um, vis-a-vis the rest of the state is also something I think is being reflected in today's politics, and that's the urban-rural divide. Um, mm -hmm. And and in the sense that it's easier actually to to see what could be done within a city um, than in than in rural areas, which are very dispersed and um, tend to have a different kind of economic base um, and perhaps. Uh, a lower income level or, or, or much more entrenched Republican um, uh, voters. Yeah, very interesting too. I think it's um, important to note that there is no state 
in the U.S. that has that is declared a state level climate emergency. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see that happen in 2020, like at least you know a couple of the greener states. Like I know Maine is coming really close. Mm -hmm. um, but I also wanted to just bring up one other quick thing that came up in the meeting. Um, among the legislative priorities for the coming session is establishing a cap and trade system for gasoline and diesel. Mm -hmm. And that that was picked up immediately by reporters as you know something that is really going to rile some feathers. Um, the goal would be accomplished through uh, work of existing coalition called the Northeast States uh, Transportation and Climate Initiative. Mm -hmm. And it's TCI for short, um, and that's they're working on the foundation of that cap and trade system, vis-a-vis uh, Reggie. Right? We all know right. the regional greenhouse gas initiative, and and it's Vermont is part of that, and it has received funding from it. Um, the system under the TCI would put a tax on distributors of gasoline. Uh, and that tax would trickle down to the people who drive cars that use gasoline, which is why people would get so upset about the whole idea is, you know, oh, it's going to make our gas prices go up. Um, but, you know, the, the inference is that the money collected under that system would go into building out a sustainable transportation system uh, like mass transit and walkable cities and electric vehicles. You know, I think that the rhetoric behind that is great, but in a place like Vermont, the idea of walkable cities is mostly useless because we're mostly just farms out in the middle of nowhere. Right. It's like, I, I need a solution that gets me from my very, very remote place to all the other places I need to be, like my work, and I can't walk there in the grocery store. I have a grocery store that's fairly close, but the idea of walking there is not only not necessarily feasible, but it's really dangerous. They, I can't just walk on the road here. So, you know, the, the thought behind it, I think, is interesting, but maybe the, the way they're selling it, is, it needs a little work. Well, it, it is. It is interesting, and I think that, I mean, it also reflects um, some of the frustration that, that clearly states and regions are experiencing because of the lack of federal leadership in any of this. I mean, mm -hmm. Obviously, I mean, something on a federal level for something like that, which is what cafe standards, for example, uh, right. are about, and, and, um, and the possibility of a carbon tax at a national level. I think the other thing that's happening, too, is that, I mean, the, the, the Atlantic um, seaboard states, uh, I guess, including Vermont, you know, even though you're not on, on the ocean, um, mm -hmm. uh, are also considering actually putting in their, into effect their own kind of regional cafe standard, and, which, is, which is actually kind of, I mean, it's very encouraging on one level. And on the other level, what it's going to do is it's going to trigger a massive number of lawsuits um, based on interference with interstate commerce. And I think mm -hmm. that what we're seeing here, I mean, in some cases, answers are, are best found at the local level. Right. And in other cases, they're best found at the federal level, and which exactly puts, puts the target on the backs of um, White Houses and the White House and Congress, no matter who's in there. And that's, mm -hmm. and this is where the problem comes in, that it's, it's great that private industry is doing whatever it's the considerable things that it's doing. I'm not, I'm not trying to, to, 
to um, to underestimate the what they what has been occurring. The same thing at the state level. The problem is that the answer can't be done with two out of the three actors that are actually needed to act. Mm -hmm. um, and and the piece that's been missing for decades now um, is the federal government. And this is something that that as the pressure builds. Um, because of the of climate experiences, because of climate related disasters and what have you, it's going to be interesting to see how this how this translates to itself. And I think that one of the things that I think is the is extremely important as a, as a as an information point is what's going to happen in the 2020 election. I mean, it's right now everybody's talking about climate, um, mm -hmm. and I mean, and for good reason. Um, and it's clear that the youth movement, for example, is not likely to go away anytime soon, um, nor should it. I mean, I, I certainly encourage it. Um, the question is going to be, will climate test, will it stand the test of time? And this is a 12 months time, less than a 12 months time. Um, in less than 12 months, the nation is going to be voting for um, members of Congress and a new and, and a president. Now, if climate is an important aspect in voter attitudes, then then we can probably push through a lot of things more rapidly than, than certainly is occurring now. If not, mm -hmm. what's going to happen is this, we're going to have this kind of decentralized approach just to continue. And there'll be some green states, some red states, some purple states, some cities. Um, and what we get is a really incomplete answer to a problem that's obviously speeding up. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's going to create it's certainly going to create political conflict in within the United States and other countries, but I think it's also going to create uh, international conflicts between nations because what's happening is that I mean we're already seeing what's happening in in Africa, for example, and in Central America. I mean the the flow of immigrants um, from Central America into the United States has as much to do with climate change and the fact that farmers can't they have no long they can no longer do subsistence farming in large parts of Central America and people naturally want to move to someplace where they can take care of their families. And I mm -hmm. think that we're, the world is at this kind of point where it's going to have to make a decision and we won't know that until at least we won't know the impact of the last year of activity, last several years of activity um, on the climate debate until November 3rd, 2020. And, mm -hmm. um, Said we, we, I, we have to get out there and do something about it. And this is, and this is a time when the, when, when environmentalists and renewable energy people need to really kind of go door to door and make sure that people vote the climate issue. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that out because it, uh, because it was going to be one of my questions before I let you go today <laughs> was the fact <laughs> that you know it's the end of the year and we are smack dab on the edge of 2020 and the elections are coming and it's going to be a crazy year next year so i'm i'm glad to have you share those insights into you know climate and the election and how that's going to go um but i will just bring it right back around to the tci for one one more point just you know when we talk about new legislation and how it's going to work and where the money is going to be going or coming from. And, and it's also useful when legislators make the connection between this program and, and a program that has already been implemented, like, for example, the uh, 
the regional greenhouse gas initiative, which has been going on for a while. Um, and, and very successfully. And, and successfully. And so a good way to understand what the success of a, you know, a TCI type system would look like would be to research the existing cap and trade system under Reggie. Um, we can actually read the October 2019 report on the investment of Reggie proceeds in 2017. So, you know, it's still two years out from, you know, what's going on right now, but it still has important insights. Uh, Vermont's benefits are primarily used under um, what's called Efficiency Vermont. And Efficiency Vermont is actually a efficiency utility. It's the first ratepayer funded efficiency utility in the US. Um, and Reggie Investments in 2017 was about $2 million. And that all basically, aside from administrative costs, um, went into Efficiency Vermont. So, you know, ultimately we can stop and take a look at what is it that Efficiency Vermont did for climate and emissions in the time that that has been going on. And, you know, is, is that what we want or is that success? Is that a measure that we can say we're willing to work towards and use a new system for that? And ultimately the legislators wanna see the TCI uh, investments in something that isn't efficiency Vermont. They want to um, have like something that looks like efficiency Vermont for transportation. And I think that's a great idea. I do too. Yeah. So that's ultimately where we are today. And uh, I think that at this point, my goal before the end of the year is to do the, the inevitable look back at 2019, see where we came from and what it potentially means for 2020 and the election and you know, everything else that we're striving for in terms of the climate. I'll be do actually I'll be doing the same thing. Um, I'm kind of I've got my wall full of uh, sticky notes about things that uh, uh, I'm going to be coming out with. Um, one of the things I will be doing uh, over the next week or so is an update on the Exxon uh, case, the the, mm -hmm. the New York uh, versus Exxon case. It's now being um, considered by the uh, court as far as uh, uh, whether or not the company is. Uh, liable for damages. Um, I also would um, like to encourage people that uh, listeners, anybody that's interested in getting more information on um, the declaration of a climate emergency in their communities or at the federal level, uh, one of the groups that, that I'm working with um, that actually is very focused on this is called the climate mobilization. Uh, it's just called the climate mobilization and you can mm -hmm. Um, you can get to it on the internet by the climate mobilization, all one word, dot org. Um, and they have, uh, they have a lot of resources on there, including um, uh, some materials that uh, local groups can be using and um, opportunities to, to get even more information and contact information. Um, they're focused very much on the local level. And so I would encourage people uh, to do that. That's a great idea. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that. All right. Well, I think that'll do it for our session today. Um, I look forward to your upcoming articles 
And Me thank too. you everyone for <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thank you everyone for listening today. Uh, you can tweet questions and comments to hashtag zero net fifty and have a great day. <laughs>